Okay, good morning, church. Please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, and those going to the preschool class, you are dismissed, and enjoy your class. Well, there were two pastors who lived back in the 1800s who started out as friends. And one of them you've probably heard of because I I quote him often, and and the other maybe you've never heard of. Um, Their names were Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. And early in their ministries, they experienced friendship and fellowship with one another. They even on occasion uh, swapped pulpits and they preached for one another and helped each other's churches out. But then something sad happened. They had a disagreement over personal convictions and opinions. Parker accused Spurgeon of being unspiritual, unspiritual for smoking cigars and smoking cigars in excess. To which Spurgeon replied, I never smoke in excess, never more than two at a time. And Spurgeon accused Parker of being unspiritual for going to the theater. And as a result, their friendship and their fellowship was broken. Now, I bring that up this morning because where we are going in in Romans 14 and really for the next few weeks, this this topic is is where we're going to be in for the next three weeks. we're, We're going to learn how to love our fellow brothers and sisters who differ with us over matters of conscience. In areas where God's word does not explicitly forbid or command something, What are we to do and how are we to love one another who have differing personal convictions and opinions? The easy thing to do when we disagree is to just divide and go our separate ways. And you can go down the road and start Second Franklin City Church. And once you get there, you can gear up to start Third Franklin City Church when disagreements arise there, as they surely will. We could just avoid disagreements altogether and surround ourselves with churches and friends who have all the same exact opinions and preferences as we do. Oh, but church, I come to you this morning to plead with you and to tell you that there is a better way for us. God's ways are better than our ways. And we honor him when we do not divide over things that we need not divide over. A lack of understanding and a lack of obedience to what God teaches us in Romans 14 and 15 is why many times grandparents are not a part of the same church as their grandkids. We see generations having differing opinions on things. This is oftentimes why it's so difficult to get people from different ethnicities and cultures to come together and be in the same church. It's because there are plenty of potential things to disagree about. And so let's acknowledge that from the start, that there are plenty of things to disagree about. One of my heroes of the faith, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a man that I've got a lot of respect for, I've learned so much from his sermons and from his books he thought that it was wrong to, t- to, to bathe more than once a week. 
you'll be, <laughs> I'd say, you'll be happy to know I disagree with him on that one. <laughs> he was concerned about anyone having a radio in their house. And I'm listening to this through my smartphone podcast app. There are plenty of potential things to disagree about. In fact, let me list to you some topics that Christians throughout history have had differing opinions on, and this is in no specific order. Things that we've disagreed on throughout history. How to best educate our kids. What style of music we use in worship. How to spend our time on Sundays. What entertainment to consume? How much entertainment to consume? Whether or not cosmetics and jewelry should be worn? Whether or not jeans and shorts should be worn? Should we play sports? Should we watch sports? What about mixed martial arts? Should we consume alcohol in moderation? How much sugar or caffeine should we consume? Should we eat fast food? Should we drink soda? Should a Christian get piercings or tattoos or body art? Our eschatology, how we believe the events of the last days will play out. Dancing, vaccines, the chosen, our preferred English translation of the Bible, video games, smartphones, use of the internet, whether or not to celebrate holidays, whether or not to celebrate certain holidays, what music we should listen to, how do we best honor our parents in their old age, and is it okay to take on debt? I'll stop there, but you get the idea. I could keep going. And now some of you, you probably, you probably hear some of those things and maybe even most things on that list and you're probably like, whatever, people don't really argue about that anymore. And if they do, you're okay if they disagree with you on it. But I would guess that there are at least a couple of those things that I listed that you feel strongly about and you can't imagine how anyone could be a Christian and disagree with, with you over it. And that's what we need to identify this morning. Where are those things that you have strong convictions about that the Bible does not clearly either forbid or command? Now, you'll be glad that, to, to hear that God is not going to tell us to not have strong personal convictions. But instead, he's going to tell us how to love our brothers and sisters who differ with our strong personal convictions. And this is so important for us, church, for us to pursue unity and purity in the church. We have to understand what God is teaching us in these next couple of chapters of Romans. And so we're starting into Romans 14. To remind you of the context, we're still in the midst of Paul teaching us how to love one another. This started back in Romans 12. And last week we learned that we are always to owe something to one another, and that is to love one another. We should have this sense of urgency and obligation in loving one another. That's what we talked about last week. And now he gives us another way we are to love one another. And we'll see this morning that we honor the Lord and we love one another by not quarreling, and by not condemning one another over matters of conscience. I'll say that again. We honor the Lord and love one another by not quarreling and by not condemning one another over matters of conscience. Let's pray and let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, we do thank you for your word. 
And we thank you for this gift that you've given us, the gift of one another, the gift of the church. Oh, but Lord, there are so, so many things, so many, so many ways that we could be tempted to divide and disagree. And I ask that you would guard this church from any sort of unhealthy division, that you would guard us against any sort of quarreling or condemning of one another. But Lord, would you guide us and show us how we are to love one another in real life, even when we differ over matters of opinion and conscience. I ask that you would protect the unity and the purity of this church. Help us keep the main things the main things. And I ask, Lord, that you would guide us through your word this morning. May your truth and your glory alone be what sticks with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now let's understand and remember what's going on in the Roman church. Because Paul is now bringing up a specific problem in the church. And while this specific problem might not be what the church throughout history has always dealt with, the the truth that is taught here is desperately needed for us as well today. And you'll remember that the early church, it was made up of Jews and Gentiles. The Jews had grown up following the Old Testament law with all of its cleanliness laws and the certain food laws, and certain foods were clean to eat and others were not clean to eat. They also had certain feasts and festivals and Sabbaths that they had to keep and acknowledge. But they had come to see that Jesus was the Messiah and now they were followers of his and a part of the church. But then you had a large group of Gentiles in the church who they had come to faith in Christ with none of those past practices, but instead they had come out of a lot of pagan practices. Many of them had worshipped idols and demons, and now they're trying to turn from worshipping those gods to instead worship Jesus as the one true God. Jews and Gentiles historically didn't like each other, but what we see happening in the early church and what we continue to see happening in the church today is that the love of Christ is powerful enough to bring people together. The love of Christ is powerful enough to bring people together. And Paul, throughout his letters to the churches, is trying to bring them together, to help them see that they are now one in Christ. And what was happening in cities like Rome and Corinth was that animals would be used in the worship of idols by the pagans in the city, and then the butchers would come and take the leftover meat, chop it up, and sell it to people in the marketplace. 
And so if Christians, when they're walking through the marketplace trying to buy some meat, if they didn't want to participate in idolatry, the question that Christians had in regard to their meat purchase was not, is it grass-fed or, or free-range or wild-caught? The question they had was, has this been sacrificed to an idol? What's, what's the past on this meat? Give me the story. How did this meat get here to the marketplace? And because this could be difficult to find out in cities like Rome and Corinth and other places, some Christians thought, hey, you know what? The safest and the easiest thing is to just not eat meat at all. And so most scholars seem to think this non-meat-eating group here that Paul has in mind in Romans were probably Jewish Christians now, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, he, he tackles a very similar topic, but maybe has more of the Gentile Christians in mind there. And whether he's addressing Jewish Christians or people with a, a Gentile background, what really matters here is that in Rome, there is a group in the church, because of their past, probably made up of Jewish Christians, who had decided that they were going to honor the Lord by not eating meat. And they are going to honor the Lord by still recognizing all the Jewish holidays and feasts and festivals. And if you're a real Christian, if you're a serious Christian, if you're a mature Christian, you should abstain from meat and agree with us as well. They are what Paul categorizes here as weak in faith. Weak in faith. Or we could say they have a weak conscience. Now, let's understand what it means to have a weak conscience, to be called weak. I, 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 none of us really like to be called weak, right? No one wants to be labeled in that weak category. But this is not calling them weak necessarily in how we think of weakness. This is not saying that their character or their commitment to God is weak. This isn't a put down like you're a weak person. Although if they're only eating vegetables, I'm going to guess they were physically weak. That was sort of a joke. Chance smiled. I appreciate it. <laughs> what Paul is saying is that when he says they are weak in the faith is that they lack the assurance that they can eat all foods and still honor the Lord in that. Right? To be weak in the faith is to mean they, they lack the assurance that they can eat all foods and honor the Lord in that. You could also say that a weak conscience is a conscience that is too easily wounded or offended. It's a very sensitive conscience. And depending on your past, in regard to that list of things I listed off in the beginning, some of those things you might have a weak conscience about, whereas others you might have a strong conscience. So it's not as if someone is just weak in conscience in all areas and strong in conscience in others. It's depending on the person, depending on the topic at hand, depending on their past and, and what they've come through and been through. There are going to be certain things that our brothers and sisters have a weaker conscience about and others that will have a stronger conscience about. But look at Romans 14.1. I mean, why are we even talking about conscience? What is the conscience? Why are we talking about it? Look at Romans 14.1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. That word for opinions is a Greek word that means disputable matters or matters of conscience. We just learned in the preceding, in the preceding verses that we are to cast off quarreling. Do you remember that? That was one of the deeds of darkness we were to cast off, cast off quarreling. And now Paul is giving a real-life example of how we might be prone to quarrel. 
And he says, do not quarrel over opinions or matters of conscience. Now, our conscience, it is a gift given to us by God. It is a good thing. It's amazing. It serves us as, as, as a guide to us. And the most helpful and simple, uh, simple definition I can give for what our conscience is comes from the book Conscience, which we have out in the bookstore that you can look at after the, the service. But they, they take a whole chapter, the authors do, going through all the scriptures in the New Testament that teach on conscience, and then they define it this way. And they say, the conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right and wrong. Now, here's the thing. No one's conscience perfectly matches the will of God. We learn throughout the New Testament, right, that our consciences can be seared. If we continue to ignore our conscience, if we continue to habitually sin, our consciences can be seared. That, 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 that voice that's prompting us, telling us what's right and wrong, that can be quieted in us. We also know that our conscience can be trained, that it can be transformed by, the, by, by God, by submitting our conscience to, to Jesus as Lord. He can transform it through the power of the Spirit, by the Word of God, and, and through amongst the community of His people, our consciences can be trained. But no one's conscience perfectly matches the will of God. And that's one thing, again, I, there's, there's going to be lots of questions about conscience that we just don't have the time for today, but that's why the next couple of weeks we're going to be talking about it as well. But the one thing we all need to humbly accept this morning is that no one's conscience perfectly matches the will of God. And we need to acknowledge that because our first inclination when someone does something that goes against our conscience is to assume that they have gone against the Lord. And we get all fired up with what we think is a, a righteous indignation, as if someone breaking our conscience was the exact same of them breaking the Lord's commands. But no one's conscience perfectly matches the will of God, and we need to have some humility to realize that. We need to have some patience with one another as we continue to do life with one another. And because our conscience does not yet perfectly match the will of God, our conscience needs to be trained. It needs to be transformed by God. It needs to be more aligned to his, his will. We need to cast off the deeds of darkness, put on the armor of light so our conscience doesn't become seared and misguided. But this takes time. This takes time. And this requires patiently loving one another in the process. My freshman year at Cedarville, my roommate and I went to the gym to play basketball. And back in high school, when we went into the high school gym to shoot hoops or to practice or to have an open gym, it was a very common thing to take your shirt off and shoot around and play. That was just a, a common thing at, at the high school. We would play shirts for skins when we did open gyms. I wouldn't have even thought a, a second about it. But when we arrived at the gym at Cedarville... It was just an empty gym full of guys. We didn't think anything of it. We took our shirts off. And we were quickly corrected that for the sake of modesty, that was not acceptable attire in the Cedarville gym. And therefore, to Brittany's disappointment, the rest of my time there, I wore a shirt in the gym. 
We did get married, though, our senior year, so it was good. Okay, later on, later on in that same gym, I would see a brother in Christ playing basketball in khaki pants and a collared shirt. And not because he had just come from class and he didn't have time to change. But because of his past and the family he had come from or the church he had grown up in, he had a personal conviction that he couldn't wear jeans or shorts because to do so would be dishonoring to the Lord. Now, what could both of us be tempted to do in that situation? Probably both of our consciences could have used some course correction. But what do we do in the meantime when our convictions are so far apart on what I would say is not an essential doctrine of Christianity? Well, what could we be tempted to do? Well, the guy in the khakis could look at me with no shirt and think, that licentious heathen, why would he dishonor God through that immodesty? And what could happen is that he could be tempted to to judge me and to condemn me in that. However, I could look at the guy playing basketball and khakis and despise him and think, man, what a legalist, what a fundamentalist. Doesn't he know he's free in Christ? Has no one preached the gospel to him? Someone go tell him the gospel. And Paul's point in Romans 14 is not to say, hey, you need to wear khakis while you play basketball, or you need to loosen up and wear some shorts. His point is saying, hey, you both still need Christ to be Lord of your conscience and align your conscience to his will. But that takes time, and you're going to have to patiently love one another through that process. He says in verse 1, those who have a weak conscience, those whose conscience won't allow them to eat meat, he says, welcome him. Welcome him. And, And to welcome someone, it means more than just to say hi to him. It means to welcome him into friendship and fellowship, to receive him with a genuine love. Welcome the brother or sister who has a differing conscience. Because the temptation for those with a strong conscience on an issue is to despise the one with a weak conscience. And the temptation for those with a weak conscience on an issue is to judge and condemn the one with a strong conscience. But Paul says to welcome one another into friendship and fellowship. Well, how do we apply this to our church context? How do we as a church welcome brothers and sisters who have a differing conscience than where we are at? Do we divide over every little differing opinion that might come up? Or on the other hand, do we become the Unitarian church and just say, hey, anything goes, you think what you think, you believe what you believe, I think what we think, let's just, let's just love one another. And this is one of the reasons that we as a church, we've tried to introduce this concept of, of theological triage here. Theological triage is a term used by many people, but first probably by Al Mohler, then also by Gavin Ortland in his book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On. 
To triage something, those of you in the medical field, you know triage means to sort or to order something. So to theologically triage means to sort or order our beliefs in, in, in a list of importance. And the three reasons that we do this is we do this, number one, to provide clarity in regards to what we believe and how we're going to be teaching from the pulpit. As people come into this church, we have a statement of faith and a constitution and bylaws they can look at. We want to provide some clarity to you as, as to what we believe and how we're going to teach. But we also do this to promote unity and purity in the body of Christ. We want to be unified on where we can be unified, and yet we also want to protect the essential doctrines of Christianity. We also theologically triage to protect the individual's conscience. We want to protect your conscience. I don't want to encourage any of you to disobey your conscience, But I want both you and I to lovingly and patiently work with one another to have our conscience submit to Christ's lordship, to have it trained and transformed by the word of God, by the power of God in the context of the people of God. And so while that phrase theological triage is never a term used in scripture, we do see a precedent set of some some doctrines being more important than other ones, some doctrines being more essential than other ones. For example, Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, he writes this, For I delivered to you as of first importance, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. There are matters that are of first importance, church. We have to keep the main things, the main things, church. Or else Franklin City Church gets messed up real quick. And so some of our first level beliefs are are beliefs that we believe they are essential to Christianity. To call yourself a Christian, you've got to hold to these. Examples would be the doctrine of the Trinity. We worship one God and three persons. The doctrine of the full deity and humanity of Jesus. That justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. These are things we we hold on to as of the utmost importance. These are hills that that I would be willing to die on. But then we have second-level beliefs. And and second-level beliefs or doctrines, these are ones that Christians may disagree on. And it might provide a disagreement where it is best to be part of different local churches. However, I would always gladly welcome people into fellowship here, even if they differed with us on second-level doctrines. Examples of these would be the roles of men and women in the church and in the home. How we understand the sovereignty of God and salvation. Baptism, how we practice baptism. We practice a believer's baptism by immersion. Second-level doctrines. And then there are third-level doctrines. And these are the beliefs that we're mainly talking about today. Third-level issues. They are matters of conscience. They are not hills to die on or divide over. And theological triage, it's been summarized as, uh, by other churches and denominations in this way. This is a quote we'll have up on the screen. In essentials, unity... In non-essentials, liberty. 
In all things, charity. It's well put. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So that's, that's one way you could apply and obey this text. And that's one way we're trying to obey this text as a church. We want to help you see that you do not need to see every hill as a hill to die on. Find the ones that are essential and hold fast to them. Hold some things in a closed hand, but hold others in an open hand with your brothers and sisters. Here's another point of application in regard to our kids and in how we are raising them. And I think this is important. For those of us raising kids, let's make sure that our kids know the difference between family rules and biblical commands. Nothing wrong with having specific rules with your, for your family. Nothing wrong at all. We learned in Romans 13, right, about the different spheres of authority and depending on your personal convictions and your past experiences and in your attempt the best you can to apply biblical wisdom to your specific context at home, you have rules for your family and you probably have a position on all those third level issues on how your family should engage in those that we've mentioned. And listen, praise God, that is great. That is good. That is fine. But let's make sure our kids know the difference between family wisdom and rules and biblical commands. Let's make sure they understand that it's not going to the movies or not going to the movies that makes them a Christian. Let's make sure they know that it's not what they eat or what they drink or what they don't eat and what they don't drink that makes them a Christian. Because if we don't do that, then when they grow up and decide that some of your rules and regulations are not for them, because all man-made rules are so dependent on conscience and context. Many of our man-made rules, they, 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 they are outdated very quickly. Let's make sure that when and if they decide to leave your man-made rules, that they don't think that means they have to leave Christ as well. Church, if my boys disagree with me on every second and third level doctrine, but they take hold of Christ and they know him and they love him and they enjoy him, then praise God. Praise God. And they will eventually come to see that I was right about the other things. <laughs> Just might take time. Also, if you don't differentiate family rules from biblical commands, you're setting your kids up for when they go outside the home to be prone to judge and condemn other Christians. And so I want to help their future churches, future pastors. I'm still young enough. It might be me, so I'm looking out for myself here as well. But if you don't differentiate family rules from biblical commands, you're setting your kids up to be prone to judge their brothers and sisters whose conscience might differ with theirs and from your families. You're setting them up to judge and not love their brother or sister. And so how do we guard against this? Well, like we said, we differentiate between family rules, biblical commands. But we also give our kids some cross-cultural experiences both internationally and down the road. 
What a great opportunity to get out of the country and to see Christianity, how it's taking place and lived out in, in our, in, not in our current context. It's a great opportunity for your kids. But even if they don't get that opportunity to go internationally and see the life of Christ lived out in different cultures and contexts, Oh, may they be around other Christians and families that maybe don't see and agree on every little thing that you do. Oh, may we not be a church that agrees on every third-level issue. Things can get so unhealthy real quick if you surround yourself only with people who have all your exact same opinions on everything. Now, in triaging our beliefs and differentiating family rules from biblical commands, that's not to say that the matters of the conscience don't matter. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what Paul is saying, or that we shouldn't have opinions on third-level issues. Because there are two easy options when differences arise. One is to divide over them, and the other is to just not care about them. Just say, whatever, I'm going to step back from this, this, this debatable topic, and I'm just not going to care. But that's not what God tells us to do. He says there will be differing opinions. You should care, but you should love those who differ from you. What does verse 5 say? Look, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This isn't a just don't care about it. But each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. God is not asking you to care less about things. He's asking you to love and be patient with others who care just as much as you do, but who differ with your opinion and final conclusion. And I say be patient because, again, none of us has a conscience that is perfectly aligned with the will of God. And therefore, our conscience must submit to God and allow him to be Lord of our conscience. That's the problem, isn't it? When we stop looking to Jesus to be Lord of our conscience, what happens instead is that we want to be Lord of other people's conscience. Right? When, I, when I stop pursuing Christ to be Lord of my conscience, oh man, I flip it into, okay, I'm going to be Lord of your conscience. Now I'm going to go through these next verses quickly because we're going to come back to them over the next few weeks, but look with me now at verse 6. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. I love what we see in these verses. Paul is helping us love one another by helping us see that we can assume the best of one another. <laughs> He's saying, hey, if that brother is abstaining, don't despise him and think of him as a legalist. Assume the best. And appreciate the fact that he's honoring and thanking the Lord through his abstaining. And if that other brother is partaking in something you are abstaining from, don't judge and condemn him and look down on him. Assume the best. 
and appreciate the fact that the one who partakes is doing so in honor of the Lord and giving thanks to God. Church, can you imagine what life would be like if we assumed the best of those who differed from us in matters of conscience? I'm pretty sure a real-life example of this in our context is what we each do on the night of October 31st. A day I've been trying to push more people to celebrate Reformation Day on that day. It's not catching on, at least in my neighborhood. But Halloween, Halloween, some brothers and sisters in our church see the, that celebration of darkness and evil, and they see the demonic influences and opportunities and the pagan past of the holiday, and their conscience says, hey, the best thing to do is just not to have anything to do with this holiday. Don't recognize it, don't participate it, don't touch it, turn out the lights, hit the floor, go out of town. And listen, if that's you, you absolutely have my full support. That is the right thing for you to do. And then there are other brothers and sisters in our church that they don't love the the witches and all the horror stuff but they know that this is the one night a year that all their neighbors are out and they get to talk and meet and build relationships with more people in their neighborhood on that night than on any other night of the year. They've prayed about it, they've sought counsel about it, and their conscience compels them to share the light of Jesus on that night with their neighbors. And their conscience is clean. They can honor God and give thanks to him through meeting their neighbors and receiving their candy, even if that candy in its past was sacrificed to an idol. Their conscience is clean. And if that's you, you've got my full support. That is the right thing for you to do. And listen, a sign of a healthy church is not a church who all agrees on what is best to do on the night of October 31st. The sign of a healthy church is a church that might have some differing opinions on matters of conscience, but who can assume the best of each other. The one who is abstaining, we can say, praise God, he's he's honoring God, he's thanking God through abstaining. And the one who's partaking, we can say, praise God. He's honoring God. He's thanking God through him partaking. God's word says to love and welcome one another, not despise or judge one another over matters of conscience. Why? Why? Verse 3. Look at verse 3. Look what we found here in verse 3. Why? God says to love and welcome one another, not despise or judge one another. Why? For God has welcomed him. Who are you to despise, reject, judge, or condemn someone who God has welcomed in through faith in Jesus Christ? Now, this doesn't mean that there isn't a place for church discipline for correcting sin that is taking place in the body that needs repented of and turned from. That's not saying that there's not a a place for that. 
in areas where God's word has made it clear what we are forbidden to do, what we should do. These are things that we need to still help one another grow in. Plenty of other places we can look for church discipline and correction. But in matters of conscience, where the word does not explicitly forbid or command, we welcome and patiently love one another because God has welcomed us. Our great God, who welcomed us even when he didn't agree with us. Did you know this? God doesn't agree with all that you think, say, and do. We welcome and love one another, not because we agree on everything, but because God has welcomed us through faith in Jesus Christ. God tells us to love and welcome one another, not despise or judge one another. Why else? Why else? Look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or why do you despise your brother? What does he do here? He takes us back to the gospel. He takes us back to a matter of first importance. Christ Jesus lived, died, and was raised so that we would be his. So that we would be his. So that he would be our Lord. Christ lived, died, and was raised so that the brother or sister sitting next to you who differs in opinion from you, he lived, died, and was raised so that they would be his as well. They are the Lord's. Christ lived, died, and was raised so that he would be their Lord. Not so that you would be their Lord. Who are you to condemn someone for whom Christ died? Who are you to despise someone who Christ loves so dearly that they are a part of his bride? Anyone who is in Christ is the Lord's. They are the Lord's. And to be the Lord's is to have great eternal value and worth. And therefore, that brother you disagree with has more value and worth than your opinion. That brother or sister you disagree with, because they are the Lord's, they have much more value and worth than your opinion. Their soul is going to last forever. Your opinion is going to be outdated in like five years. They are the Lord's. Your opinion is yours, and you are welcome to have them but highly value and cherish what is the Lord's. Hold your stuff with some open hands, some charity towards your brothers and sisters. Your brother and sister are the Lord's. They have more value than your opinions. God tells us to love and welcome one another, not to despise or judge one another. How do we keep a right motivation and perspective? Look, look with me back at the text. 
for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So how do we keep a right motivation and perspective and love one another well? But well, we keep our eyes on Christ and we remember where we are headed. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, for those whose faith is in Christ, you have already been de- declared righteous and not guilty. You are justified in Christ. You will not be condemned. But there will be a judgment where God will test our lives and our ministries and our work and will receive rewards for that which has eternal value. It's going to come to light how much we loved one another here on earth. It's going to come to light how much we despised one another here on earth, how much we judged one another here on earth. I mean, what is really worth bringing up about one another as we are approaching the judgment seat of God? I don't know about you, but when my eyes are fixed on Christ and I see that each of us will give an account of himself to God, I don't know about you, but that makes me a bit less concerned about your conscience and opinions and a little bit more concerned about my own. Don't be the kid that tattles to the teacher that so-and-so had their eyes open during prayer. It's saying more about you than it is about them. Is your great concern for other people's opinions and matters of conscience, is your great concern for theirs more than your own, is that saying something more about you than it is about them? Question to consider. The Lord will not be impressed with you that you died on more hills than he did. Don't forget you are going to stand before the judgment seat of God and answer for how you lived and how you loved your brothers and sisters. Oh, but church, the love of Christ is powerful enough to bring people together. And it's happening here. It's it's not happening perfectly here, but it's happening here. And we honor him when we do not divide over things that we need not divide over. He died to purify our conscience and to be the Lord of our conscience. And we love and welcome one another instead of despising and judge one another because God has welcomed us. God has welcomed us through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And therefore, may we honor the Lord and love one another by not quarreling and by not condemning one another over matters of conscience. Let's pray.